Well, let's pray one more time for the Lord to bless our time together uh, in His Word. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we come before You now, and Lord, we thank You for this hour. Lord, thank You for this moment that we can come and partake of this uh, monumental event known as preaching, that we can come and to hear Your Word preached and proclaimed, and Father, that we would be obedient, not only just hearers, but doers of Your Word. Help us, Lord, to be those doers of Your Word, to be obedient to the perfect law of liberty, the gospel. Father, we pray that Your Son, Jesus, would be magnified now, displayed, as we have a perfect picture of Him now as our high priest from start to finish, and as we meditate on the significance of His becoming the source of our eternal salvation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the last sermon uh, that I'm going to be preaching on with what I entitled The Christocentric Nature of the Priesthood, Um, because that really is what it is. Uh, The author of Hebrews has labored to show us that the Old Old Testament priests are really just a shadow. They're a foreshadowing. They are an analogy, if you would. They are a pattern of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and that priesthood is fulfilled in the life and in the person and in the work of Jesus as we have seen. Now, I want to correlate two verses again together for us, the last two, which is verse 4 and verses 9 through 10. In verse 4, it says that no, no one takes the honor, that is the honor of a priest, to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Now, I want you to look at verse 9 and 10. It says, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now again, verse 4 leaves off with the old priesthood, and verse 10 leaves off with the new priesthood. That's the way that it works. But I want to focus in on this idea that no one takes the honor to himself. Because if there's one thing that we can parallel there with Jesus Christ is the fact that Jesus was resigned. He, in other words, he, he humbled himself and he resigned himself to the will of the Father. You know, the entire life of Jesus can be described as one great resignation of the high priest, Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, Jesus humbled himself. It'll begin to shed some light on passages out of John that we'll look at. But if you think of what Philippians says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, it says that Jesus literally became nothing, that he emptied himself, that he became of no reputation. How? By taking on the form of a servant. So that from the, the very inception of his life, Jesus had yielded his glory. He had yielded his honor to the Father, and he allowed God to vindicate him, to raise him up, and to exalt him at his appropriate time. So that what you get in the life of Jesus is glimpse after glimpse after glimpse of absolute power and glory under submission. You think about Jesus in his childhood. There he is in just even as a baby. He is fleeing to Egypt fleeing the kings of the earth that he himself was sovereign over. 
You see him in his adolescence there in the temple, teaching and dialoguing with all of the theologically elite of that day. Can you imagine? Now, I've been to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and I've gone into the rabbi's tunnel, and I've seen uh, the, the Orthodox Jews gathering around the Torah and discussing it amongst themselves. It's quite a sight to see. It is a passionate conversation. Jews don't do anything without passion. And when they discuss the Torah, it is passionate. And I can just envision there a, a young boy, Jesus, in the midst of all of the aged scholars of that day, and telling them what the true meaning of the Torah was, discussing the law with them. Just amazing. Just a glimpse of his omniscience that he veiled, that he, that he decided not to operate in the full extent of. But you see it everywhere. You see it in his miracles. Time after time, Jesus warned people not to make his miracles public. When Jesus' own mother asked him to perform a miracle, he said, woman, my time has not yet come. What was that other than an indication that the entire life of Jesus was under the submission of the will of the Father, that he was quite content to allow the Father to exalt him? And so that's what I want to look at now, is I want to look at the, the supremacy of our high priest, the redemptive glory of our high priest, really, and I want to do that by pointing out four very important things. As we think about verses 4 and verses 9 and 10, we will look at the supremacy of Jesus Christ in terms of his resignation of the Father, his perfection through obedience, his life-giving power, and then the permanent glory that he possesses. So number one, the fact that Jesus did not glorify himself, himself. Um, this has to do, again, with the Old Testament priest allowing God to appoint him, because that's the point of the passage. No one takes the honor to himself, but instead he receives it when he is called by God. This is attested to everywhere in the Old Testament in terms of the priesthood. It's seen in uh, Exodus 28 that it is God who installed the priest, God who initiated the priesthood. Leviticus 8 uh, is, is one of the principal passages that shows the requirement of the priest and everything that God did to install his priests. So, uh, so much so that if you look at Numbers 3, for example, in Numbers 3.10, I can just read it to you, but uh, God cared so much about this that if a person were to approach the priesthood hastily and unqualified, they were to be put to death. You shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood, but the layman who comes near, that is, to become a priest, he will be put to death. Now, what does that signify? That is meaning that an unqualified, uncalled person could not hastily assume the role of a, high, of a priest. He couldn't do it. He had to be divinely appointed by God, and that is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus was appointed by the Father to be the priest of his people. As we'll see, this goes all the way back into eternity, into the plan of redemption that God always had from the beginning of time and even prior to the beginning of time in the realm of eternity. And what this does for us, really, it did for me, I hope it does for you, is it shows you kind of the... Uh, the it sheds light, rather, on the statements that Jesus makes throughout his, 
his time in the Gospels. Look at John 8, 54, for example. This is a text that maybe you've read time and again, and maybe you've been a little bit perplexed as to why Jesus makes statements like this. John 8, 54, he says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Now, when we think of the deity of Christ, we're tempted to think, well, what is that referring to? Isn't God allowed to glorify himself? But Jesus was not operating there in terms of his divine uh, nature, but he was speaking as a man. It sheds light on his priesthood. He says, it is my Father who glorifies me. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is he didn't do anything that was out of step with God's plan for his life. He didn't do anything that was out of step with the way that God had purposed to glorify his son. And how did, he, how did he purpose to glorify his son? Through suffering. Again, look at verse 9 in Hebrews. Having been made perfect. Having been made perfect refers to the, 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 the place of exaltation. The fact that Jesus, after his suffering, consequent to his suffering, consequent to the cross, God exalted him to the right hand of the majesty on high. That's exactly the way the book of Hebrews begins. It begins with that, but now we are seeing that the pastor of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is sort of filling in the nuts and bolts of that exaltation, how it works. And it's ultimately a Trinitarian affair. It is the Spirit who will glorify the Son. And it is the Spirit that raises the Son. And it is the Father in John 17 that will glorify the Son. The whole Trinity is bound up in this work, this Trinitarian work. Turn with me quickly to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, for example, just to see that this was principally in the mind of the apostles when they conceived of Jesus of Nazareth. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 33, or actually, we can start in verse 32. This Jesus, Acts 2, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. This is sort of a parallel of what we're seeing here in Hebrews, that he became the source of eternal salvation for those that obey him. Now jump over to chapter 5, maybe more explicitly. John, or excuse me, Acts chapter 5, pardon me. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Verse 31 says, He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Does that sound familiar? That God is the one that exalted him to his right hand. That is exactly the language of Hebrews. That is exactly the language of Psalm 110 because that is exactly the language of the of the perfection of the Messiah, of the glorification process, of the exaltation process. Jesus did not deviate from that plan. And that's why he didn't seek to glorify himself as other men do, but he waited, he resigned himself to allow the Father to exalt him, to allow the Father to glorify him precisely through the agency of the cross. 
He didn't, si- he didn't sidestep the cross. In Gethsemane, you remember, it was the fact that he had pleaded with God, the one able to save him from death, another sign of his resignation. So, this moves us to the next point. Not only do we see the redemptive glory of Christ in the fact that he did not honor himself, but rather was resigned to the Father, letting the Father glorify him, but also that he was perfected through obedience. He was made perfect through obedience. Look at verse 8 of Hebrews 5. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Well, this is already mentioned in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 9, he already referred to that. He says, we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death. He was crowned with glory and honor. That is how the Son was to be glorified, through His path of obedience. He waited for the Father to vindicate Him in the midst of His sufferings. He prayed to the One able to save Him. And this kind of trust in the faithfulness of God is exemplary for us as well, that we are to resign our lives. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. ties the whole thing in together. Not just the suffering of ourselves, not just our trials, our tribulations, our temptations, but the fact that it is exemplary to Christ, the fact that it is analogous to Christ, that we follow in His footsteps. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning of verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Jesus was not surprised, which comes upon you for your testing. Jesus was tested as though some strange thing was happening to you. There was no strange thing that was happening to Jesus. This was all part of the plan. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep rejoicing, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. I would say, even as Jesus does. Even as Jesus did. He rejoiced consequent to his exaltation, bearing up under trial. Jesus did not commit himself to the divine will of God simply because it was the right thing to do, brothers and sisters, but because in what it would result in. Remember what Jesus said in John 17, 5? He had his eyes on the prize. That's a question for us. Do we have our eyes on the prize? Are we eternally minded in the context of our trials? He says, In John 17, 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory that I had with You before the world was. See, that is what Jesus is longing to return. Uh, D.A. Carson says that Jesus was longing to return to that pre-existent glory with the Father. That's exactly what Jesus is saying there. His hope was in God's greatest cause of all. His eternal, triune glory. But now I want to move to the main point of what I want to look at today. Not only was Jesus resigned to the, to, the, to the Father, letting Him glorify Him, not only was Jesus perfected through His obedience, and we've looked quite a, quite a bit at that, but number three, the main point, the redemptive glory of Christ is seen in the fact that He became the source of salvation. Let's look at verse 9. Again, verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 5. It says, 
And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now, what, this past, what that text, verse 9, what it gives us is two conditions and a result. Two conditions of a, and a result. Number one, the first condition, of course, is the perfecting of the Son through suffering. That is what, uh, that is what the ver- or how the verse starts out by setting out the fact that it is through the perfection of the Son, having been made perfect. And um, in that instance, the author uses the passive voice, which means someone perfected Him. And of course, that is referring to the Father. The Father perfected His Son through suffering. He brought Him to the ultimate state of existence, through suffering. It's, such, it's so easy for us to see our own lives in this, that we are being perfected in a sense through suffering, that suffering for us is having its perfect work, and that once we've gone through our trial, our suffering, once we've gone through this life of trial, temptation, and affliction, that we too will be glorified. We too will be brought to a place of exaltation, of exaltation. Now, What the author of Hebrews is doing here, however, I think, is he's showing us some things here that are so profound for how we interpret Scripture. In fact, the entire history of redemption, I think, is sort of the undergirding of what is being said here. First, I want you to acknowledge that the book of Hebrews casts Jesus as a man. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2. You remember that was his point. The pastor of Hebrews utilizes Psalm 8, a very familiar psalm to tap into what it means to be human. But he associates that psalm to Christ. And he says there in in, in chapter 2, quoting Psalm 8, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. Do you know where that language comes from? That language doesn't originate in Psalm 8. It doesn't originate in Psalm 1. It originates in the Garden of Eden. This psalm is an endemic psalm. It is a psalm that tells us what it is that man was intended to do, to have dominion over the creation. That's what he means. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. In other words, what the author of Hebrews, I believe, is doing is he's showing us that Jesus, the second Adam, fulfills the purpose of God. See, this is Hebrews' way of talking the way that Paul talks. Turn with me. There's a couple of very crucial texts to see this. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians. Now, I want you to really follow along with me here because this is massive for how the Bible goes together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As the Apostle Paul contemplates what is the gospel, I want you to notice what Paul does. His explanation of the gospel may be exactly the way that you and I should think it should be. Beginning in verse 3, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Well, easy enough. 
But now look at the way he fleshes this out. Turn to verse 22, or look down to verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 27. He has put all things in subjection under his feet. Does that sound familiar? That is the language of Psalms. That is the language of the garden. That is the language of Adam. That is the language of Adam and Eve and their dominion over the garden. And so what is Paul doing here but showing us that the second Adam fulfills that which the first Adam was supposed to do? Let's make it crystal clear. Verse 45. Jump down to verse 45. So also it is written, the first Adam became a life giving soul, or excuse me, became a living soul. Watch this. The last Adam, Christ, he became what? A life-giving spirit or a life-giving soul. In other words, where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Adam was supposed to pass on eternal life to his posterity, his people, those whom he was intended to be fruitful and multiply and to have a myriad of descendants. And if he would have obeyed, if he would have done what was right, he would have earned the righteousness that was needed to make everybody, the entire human race, live forever and ever and ever and eat of the tree of life forever and ever and ever. But the picture wasn't perfect, was it? There was a great fall. But my dear friends, this is the beautiful thing about the message of the Bible. The great fall of Adam in one sense, as Jonathan Edwards put it, is called the happy fall. The happy fall. Why is it the happy fall? Because without the fall, we don't get redemption. And you see, this is all part of God's eternal purposes that he summed up in Christ. God's eternal purposes was not to sum all things up in Adam and Eve. It is to sum all things up in his Son. In the Gospels, Jesus, or excuse me, in the Gospels, in the genealogies, I forget which one it is, I think it's Luke, Adam is called the Son of God. What an appropriate title for the one who would represent the prototypical Son of God, the real Son of God, the one that earns our salvation, truly, truly earns the righteousness that we need and applies it to us. He comes into the, the fullness of what it means to be truly human, exalted to the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over God's creation. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Because I want you to see that for Jesus to be exalted means that he comes in the fullness of life in the Spirit, and he dispenses the Spirit to us. Romans chapter 1. What a remarkable way to talk about the gospel, by the way. Watch closely, because when, you, when I ask you, what is the gospel, I guarantee you the first thing that you're going to tell me is, well, the gospel is about how man can be saved through Jesus Christ and how man can have eternal life, and man, and man, and man, and man, and man. But it's quite the opposite when you ask Paul, at least in this sense. It has everything to do with the benefactor of the gospel and not the beneficiaries of the gospel, at least primarily. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, who is the benefactor of the gospel? Who is the one blessing us but Christ? 
We receive the blessing. We are the beneficiaries of the gospel. But primarily, the gospel is about the benefactor. Romans chapter 1. He's talking about the gospel of God. Remarkable phrase, right? By the way, that phrase is mentioned again in Peter's letter, the gospel of God. I mention that because liberals are always trying to pit Paul against other authors, right? As if they had no theological unity whatsoever, right? You know that, John, going, in, going to seminary. You read all those books. It's in the, it's in the footnotes, right? Oh, they're so different. Obviously, you know, they, there's conflicting ideas. No, they had total unity, totally fellowship. They had different emphasis, just like Paul and Hebrews has different emphasis. But he's talking about the gospel of God. It says, which he promised beforehand through the prophets, through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Where are the beneficiaries? We don't get to the beneficiaries until we grasp the benefactor, until we grasp the blessedness of Jesus. Then we get to the blessings that come from Jesus. And what is Paul saying here? As the second Adam, as our mediator, as our representative, as our Savior, Jesus was raised in power. You see that? He was declared the Son of God with Power, I tell you, that word power is analogous to what we're seeing in Hebrews with having been perfected, right? Having gone to the right hand of the Father. That's the power that he's talking about. Exaltation power. What am I trying to say? Paul makes the Adamic connection. Hebrews makes the priestly connection. And both show us why and how Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. Adam should have passed life to his people. Adam should have passed life to his posterity. The life, that life is now eternally found in Christ. Instead, Jesus is the one that goes beyond the probationary period, beyond the testing period, beyond temptation, beyond this earth and to use the language of Hebrews, beyond the heavens, through the heavens, so that he became the source of eternal life for us. How does this work out practically? He doesn't just convert us. Oh, it's a lot more than that. He changes everything about us. Turn to 1 Corinthians, if you would, with me. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, and beginning in verse 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 30, just to see all that Christ is for us. It says, but by His doing, 1 Corinthians 1.30, by His doing, that is God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. In other words, God is the one that put you in union with His Son. He became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, what does that have to do with our practical lives? It has everything to do with our practical lives. Why? Because in the context of 1 Corinthians, what Paul is answering here is that Jesus is the alternative to the wisdom of the world. 
Are we surrounded by the wisdom of the world? Yes. Look at the wisdom of the world and all its pitiful attempts to try to understand the world. You know, Starbucks is a perfect example of that here recently, right? They recently went on a, on a racial reconciliation campaign where the genius baristas that work for Starbucks were to engage the customers in, in discussions about racial reconciliation and race. So they were supposed to write on your cup, on your latte, or in my case, your caramel macchiato, they were supposed to write race together. And that meant that barista, that employee, wanted to have a race conversation with you to discuss the state of things in the nation concerning race. Well, not surprisingly, that entire endeavor fell to pieces. <laughs> I don't think, you know, people that are a bit older than the 18-year-old college student behind the cash register really wants a college kid educating him about race you know, or anything else for that matter, except maybe coffee, right? And so that is just a, an example of the wisdom of the world, the, the world trying its hardest to, to, to understand, to interpret. Well, thanks be to God that Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. You see, in Paul's day, everybody had their own wisdom. It was the wisdom of the world. Everybody had their own philosophy. They had their own views on life. They had their political views, their religious views, their ethical views. Everybody had their own demands on what qualified as rational or reasonable and true and tolerant. Nothing is new, folks, in our culture. It's all repeating itself. Some of them sought empirical data. Others sought impressive rhetoric. 1 Corinthians 1.22, the Jews seek a sign. The Greeks seek wisdom. Everybody has their demands, don't they? Everybody has the way that they want things to be, but Jesus gives us true wisdom. Jesus is our wisdom, it says. He replaces all that is lacking in the fallen culture in which we live, and he keeps us grounded in the truth so that we are not deceived and so that we are not blown and tossed by every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men. He is our wisdom. But he also provides a perfect moral righteousness. He is wisdom from God, and watch this, he is righteousness and sanctification righteousness and sanctification. In other words, He is the one who qualifies us by imputing His righteousness to us so that we can stand in the presence of God. And He is also concerned with our spiritual maturity. See, it's not just about people getting saved. How many people operate off of that premise? Oh, I'm saved. Don't worry about me, right? I've prayed the prayer. I've been baptized. I'm a member of a Baptist church. I'm, I'm fine. But they don't really think that the Christian life is much more than that. The Christian life, as much as it is about regeneration, is also about sanctification and the need to grow spiritually, to mature in your Christian faith. That's really what it's all about. In Christ, it says in the Bible that we are being renewed into His image, 1 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being restored into the moral image of God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, according to true wisdom and holiness. And we are also 
giving the ability, therefore, to be like Christ, to be like Christ. Now, there's another condition, right? If you look at the text back in Hebrews, not only is the condition, first and foremost, that Jesus would be perfected as our mediator who suffered on our behalf, but uh, look what it says as well. He became to all those who obey Him. Let's talk about that. What is Hebrews trying to convey here? All those that obey Him. He became to them the source of eternal life. Well, I think we need to qualify quickly that what the Scripture here is not saying is that obedience is the basis or the ground of our salvation, that by obeying you become saved. That is certainly not what it's saying. As a matter of fact, that is not the way the, the syntax or the argument even works. He's actually, he actually becomes this in light of his his perfection, not in light of our obedience. Our obedience, in other words, we could say, is the attending circumstance of our salvation. It is the logical outflow of our salvation. It is the character and the nature of our salvation, those that obey. Now, I'll return to this in a moment. But there's a result, and this is the result, that Jesus becomes to us the source of eternal salvation. You know, everybody has a source. Everybody has something that they base their life on. Everybody has something they put their hope in, whatever it may be. But for us, brothers and sisters, our hope is only in the eternal salvation that Jesus provides. He is our source. He is our fountainhead. He is our satisfaction. He is our everything. And the only question left for us is, will we obey? Now, bear in mind here in the letter of Hebrews, obedience and salvation are so closely connected that for the author, they cannot be separated. If you are saved, you will obey. And if you obey, it means you have been saved. One cannot go without the other. Remember the context of Hebrews, that the author of Hebrews is comparing this church to the generation in the wilderness. And what happened to the generation in the wilderness? They were disobedient and they fell in the wilderness. His wrath was provoked. He was, they provoked God in the wilderness. Even though, chapter 4, verse 6, even though they had the good news preached to them, they were still rebellious. They were still obstinate. They still were recalcitrant, stiff-necked, in other words, even though they had the truth preached to them. Oh, how that mirrors many people today who name the name of Christ. You may have the truth preached to you week after week after week, and still there is a pattern of disobedience in your life. Still there are issues that you just refuse to change in your life, refuse to repent of. But the reality is, is that obedience and salvation go together. Maybe put in the opposite, in the reverse order. Let me read to you some scriptures that do the exact same thing. Romans chapter 2, verse 8. Those that are selfish, ambitious, that do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and there will be indignation. You see that? You will obey something. And if you don't obey the truth, you will obey unrighteousness, but you will obey something. As he goes on to say in Romans chapter 6, you will either be a slave of righteousness or you will be a slave of sin. Either way, you're going to serve somebody. 
what the author of Hebrews is saying is this, that we had better obey him if he is to be the source of our salvation. So what that means to me is that through obedience, we get greater assurance. That's it. You want to be assured? You want to have a, a heart of assurance? You want the Spirit to work in your heart for assurance? Obedience. Obedience is nuclear strength for personal assurance of salvation. It's that simple. 2 Thessalonians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. It says that Jesus Christ will return to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Wait, what do you mean obey the gospel? I thought the gospel was just the good news of Jesus Christ. Folks, I want to kind of clarify something here that I think a lot of people mistake, and that is the thought that the only thing that will bring conviction is the Ten Commandments, that you have to use the Ten Commandments, and I do, and you, do, and you should, and we all ought to, but be leery of thinking that the gospel is devoid of moral imperative. The gospel, in fact, is an imperative. The imperative of the gospel is repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you do not obey the gospel, then, as, Paul, as uh, Paul says here in Thessalonians, there will be retribution, judgment, wrath. In 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, Peter says it this way, lockstep with the other authors of Scripture. He says, it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will, become, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. There's the phrase, the gospel of God. Just like Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, that, that he was serving the gospel of God. So then the question just remains, is Jesus the source of eternal salvation for you? Well, that will depend on whether or not we can honestly say that we are living obedient lives. Friends, it has nothing to do with sinless perfection. It has everything to do with your way of life. It has nothing to do with being sinlessly perfected, as some heretics would say. But it has everything to do with your lifestyle, your conduct, your practice. Are you obeying the gospel? Do you obey that which is required of you? You remember what Jesus said in John 14, 15. If you love me you will obey me. And there's no way to weasel out of that. To say, well, you don't understand. I'm weak in this area. I just can't obey. No, my dear friends, we, we ought to be very weary of being too quick to fly to the flesh as an excuse for why we can live disobediently to the gospel. Oh, sure, the flesh will plague you to the day that you die. It will constantly be a weight. It will be constantly an encumbrance to your endurance. But it cannot be an excuse for disobedience. And I think what the authors of Scripture have in mind more than anything is a willful, re open rebellion to the commands of the gospel. The Scripture says, strive, run, fight, cut off, pluck out, 
kill what is earthly in you. Now, can we honestly say that those are characteristics that describe our Christian life? Where is the cutting off and the plucking out? Where is the running and the fighting? Where is the war? Where is the, the spiritual murder against the flesh? <laughs> I've got to be very careful there. I'm trying to shock you into this, but I'm trying to go too far either. <laughs> but it's Paul who says in Colossians, 3, in Colossians 3, 5, kill what is earthly in you. Put it to death is the word that he uses. He's not mincing around. He's not just toying around, playing around, piddling around with the flesh. He is offering up holy violence. And he's saying, the attitude that you should have towards your sin and your flesh is kill, murder it, put it to death. Because you will either put sin to death or sin will put you to death. It's that simple. It's that simple. Therefore, as Paul asks the Philippians, I ask us, are we walking worthy of the calling with which we have been called? Do you forgive when you ought to forgive, or are you poisoned by bitterness and unforgiveness? Do you, do you lead men? Do you lead your families as you ought to, or have you shriveled up in abdication? Ladies, do you submit to your husbands as you ought to, or is the rebellion of feminism has it not left you yet? Are you still clutching on to the feminism of this age? Or are you under submission? Do we serve as we ought to serve one another? Or are we still shackled by our selfish ambition? Isn't that amazing? We think selfish ambition is freedom, getting what we want. The Bible says it's slavery. It's the complete opposite. To be selfish is to be a slave. No, to be a servant is to be free. So glorious. Glorious. Do we serve as we ought to? Do we, encourage our, do we encourage one another as we ought to? Or maybe is there no genuine love for the brethren in our heart? We can't remember the last time we encouraged anybody. We don't go out of our way to encourage anybody. We go out of our way to stay away from people, not to encourage them. That is not Christian maturity. That's not obedience to the gospel. And so we have to take this warning serious. See, this is what, this is what the, the book of Hebrews is all about, these solemn warnings that come bearing down on our souls, right? Arturo Azurdia, after preaching on some of this, had to qualify to his church that he was not teaching, you know, that you can lose your salvation or that you had to earn your salvation because of the warnings that were so weighty and so powerful, you almost get the impression that it has all to do with you. But don't make a mistake, dear friends. That's not what Hebrews is saying. But what Hebrews is saying is this, let all those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity, depart from evil. The grace of God teaches us to do what? To renounce, right, sin. To renounce ungodliness and fleshly lusts. That is what the grace of God produces above all. Obedience. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. You see, because I am fundamentally concerned that we have a view of the gospel that is 
powerful, that is transformative, and that is opposite of what we're hearing today coming out of voices like the so-called Gay Christian Network. That's right. There is a network, uh, oxymoron, uh, an oxymoron network entitled the Gay Christian Network that believes that you can be active in the homosexual lifestyle and still be faithful to the gospel, that these two things are compatible. And they deny, by what they affirm, they deny what the gospel teaches about its power to transform. I've seen the transformative power of God. Yeah, I had a friend who was deep in the gay lifestyle for many years. And I remember the way that he waged war with his old lifestyle. And he would tell us, he told me, if you ever see me doing effeminate things, holding myself in a feminine way, speaking too effeminately, reverting to that style of conduct, rebuke me, tell me, pull me aside and say, brother, uh, you know, you need to watch how you're doing your mannerisms. That's a person that's serious about sanctification. I mean, how, how awkward is that? That was an awkward conversation, but I'm glad I had it. Because it means that brother is really serious about the power of the gospel. He believes it, that the power of the gospel can transform him and not leave him in the state in which he was in. And I'm so blessed to see him now, married, children, serving, worshiping, transformed, totally new, and a complete contradiction to what the Gay Christian Network is telling us, that we are abusing people by insisting that the gospel has the power to change you at a fundamental level. It is a total denial. But Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, watch this, you became obedient from the heart, meaning genuine obedience, not moralism, not religiosity. I was so grieved today driving to church, driving by this big Catholic church. And I told my wife, where are all these people coming from? There's a million people at this church. I said, well, Palm Sunday, you know, uh, the attendance is way up. Oh, so you mean these 10,000 people that I see out here in the streets, you mean they're just fulfilling their little moral duty and then they don't show up next Sunday? Because that crowd's not there every Sunday that I drive by. It is a fraction of what we saw today. But see, that is the moralistic heart of man, the moralistic heart of man that thinks all he needs to do is a, what is morally required of him, and then he go back to his life without God. But that's not what this is talking about. When it says, from the heart, it means a real change has happened. These are those that obey him. These are the ones who have Jesus as the source of their eternal salvation. They became obedient from the heart. And what did they become obedient from the heart to? Tradition? No, my dear friends. From the teaching to which you were committed. The tradition is the apostolic teaching. If you want to use the word paradosis, tradition, it is the apostolic doctrine. That's what they became obedient to. And yet, what do you hear today? More than anything, more than anything, 
You hear people, whether it's the Gay Christian Network or whether it's some other postmodern movement, what do you hear? Oh, doctrine divides, but Christ unites. Away with doctrine. That's what they're saying. Because they understand that doctrine is their enemy. They, they can't possibly, they don't possibly have a leg to stand on when it comes to those kinds of issues. And so what do they want to do? They want to remove the issue from the equation. They want to remove the doctrine. Remove the doctrine so we can have our lifestyle. It's so, it's so satanic, isn't it? So diabolical, is it not? And I really mean that, diabolical. God did not say, did he? God did not really say. Same old lie. It's never changed. It's never going to change to the end of time. Muslims believe that lie. Gay Christian Network believes that lie. Postmodernism believes that lie. Buddhism believes that lie. Hinduism. Our city here in Frisco is inundated with Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists and uh, Eastern religion is coming here. I don't know if you saw that. And, and I've got news for you, folks. Texas is one of the number one states in the union where Muslim immigration is at the highest level. In other words, Texas above, I think it's number four in the nation for Muslim immigration. We are being inundated by Islam and Hinduism as well because they come here for tech jobs. They come here for programming jobs. It's great because that means the mission field has come. You don't even got to get on a plane. Just walk down the street or go to the mosque, you know? Don't get me started on that because I'll never end. Okay, let's end it with the way that this passage ends. Moving from the fact that Jesus is the source of our salvation, the eternal source of salvation, he also holds that, me that role as our mediator permanently. In verse 10 it says, he was designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So he, he sort of reiterates this element of Melchizedek. But there's a couple things that I want to point out here. Of course we understand Melchizedek means that the priesthood of Jesus is, per, is permanent. Uh, it's not going to change. Unlike the Aaronic priesthood, it's not going to end either. So he stands as a priest forever to intercede for us forever. But the other thing that it does, the other thing that it shows us is that because he's in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus is not arbitrarily replacing the old covenant priesthood because the law had sworn long ago of his priesthood. And what I'm referring to, of course, is the oath that we have in Psalm 110, verse 4, which is quoted right here in this context. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That means God had always prepared for this to happen. This means that the priesthood of Jesus Christ conforms to God's plans and God's purposes for his people. It's not God arbitrarily changing his mind. Oh, you know the Aaronic priesthood, it didn't work. Okay, I'll just start up a new thing. I'll start up a new thing. I'll call it the Melchizedekian priesthood. 
Because you know Melchizedek, that figure in the Old Testament, no beginning, no end of days, no beginning of life, no end of days. I'll use an ambiguous passage like that and I'll ground it to something like that. Absolutely not. That's not the way that it works. This oath in Psalm 110 verse 4 means that God bound himself to the honor of his great high priest, Jesus Christ. And if he promised, then he must perform it. And that's what we're seeing here. The fact that he is according to the order of Melchizedek means that it is all, as uh, Graham Goldsworthy would say, it is all according to plan. It is all according to plan. Oh, and I can't wait for next week. Let me give you a preview of next week. Next week is all about the fact that this church was misunderstanding the nature of the new covenant. And what was the, what was the principal cause of that misunderstanding? There was nothing wrong with the theology. There was nothing wrong with the content. But there was something wrong with the, the hearers. There was something wrong with the audience. There was something wrong with the church. What was, it, what was wrong with the church? It had become biblically illiterate. You think that's relevant for today? Not that I'm looking to preach for what's relevant today. It just happens to be. Not just preach the Bible. It's just always going to be relevant. But, I mean, think about that. A leading professor of a, of a, of a, of a respected seminary and university in Southern California said that in the past, oh, 20 or something years, he has noticed in his entry seminary classrooms a great decline in, uh, and, and a great increase of biblical illiteracy. That his students that are coming in, compared to students 20, 25, 30 years ago, know so much less basic information about the Bible. They think the Saul of the Old Testament is the same Saul as the book of Acts. Things like that. The church is in a dangerous place because our enemies are ever increasing. And yet, our fortitude, our strength, our artillery, biblically speaking, is decreasing in many sections of the evangelical church. And so, this comes in as a stern rebuke and admonition to the church to be, above everything, a disciple. You know what a disciple is? Mathetes means it's where we get the word math. Mathetes means that you are a learner. Are you a learner? Are you a student of the Bible? That's the question to be asked. A student is somebody that makes preparations to study. Do you have a place in your house where you do that? Do you have a study place in your house? A student is someone that knows how to study, that follows certain guidelines to study whatever it is that he's studying. Do you do that with the Bible? Do you have right principles of hermeneutics, for example? Do you understand how to study the Bible? These are the things that I want to talk about next week. So be sure and come back. Let's pray. Oh, Father... Father, I just stand in amazement, and I know today that I have failed miserably to begin to even approximate what it is that Jesus has done. Oh, everything that God has done in Christ is so marvelous. 
As he would tell the, the prophets, I, w- I will tell you something that if you knew what it was, your ears would tingle. The marvel of redemption, the marvel of the, the plan of redemption that God fulfilled in Christ, the things that angels long to look into. And Lord, we have it now. The mystery of God, ages past, has been hidden away in God has now been revealed to us. We know what the purpose of the story is. It is to bring us the source of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. Father, help us to esteem us, to esteem him. Help us to esteem Christ as our mediator, as our high priest, as our intercessor, as the source of all good things that we seek from Him. And Lord, help us to be obedient. Father, we feel the weight of that right now. And we tremble. And we say, oh God, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for we fall short. And we, we, we cry out to You, say, oh God, remember that we are dust, that we are breath, that we are weak. But Lord, at the same time, we also are asking you to make us more zealous for what is good. Make us like children, obedient to the milk of the Word of God, obedient to your Word. Humble us in simple obedience to Christ. We pray that you would help us now, Lord, and the Bible and studying your Word has everything to do with that. And so, Lord, continue to make us students of your Word And make us skillful at applying your word to our lives so that we know how to... This is why you gave us the word of God, so that we we wouldn't be without a guide. We wouldn't be without a counsel so that we can rightly apply the word of truth to us. Oh, Lord, do this by the power of your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.